Welcome back to Refocused with Lindsay Gensel. What you're listening to today, it's a little bit different than the podcast episodes we've shared with you before. This episode, This Person's Story, is a part of Refocused Together, a special series the team at ADHD Online and I have been working on for ADHD Awareness Month. Every day throughout the month of October, we'll be sharing a different person's ADHD story, which is fitting because the theme for ADHD Awareness Month this year is understanding a shared experience. And I can't think of a better way to really get a sense of that shared experience than by telling a different story every single day. And to be clear, yes, that's 31 stories in 31 days. My name is Lindsay Gensel, and along with the team at ADHD Online, I'm so excited to present Refocus Together, a collection of stories aimed at raising awareness on just how complex ADHD is and the different ways it shows up in people's lives. When we share stories, it's easier to find the perspective, ideas, and tips that help us live our best lives. I'm interviewing people with varying backgrounds, diagnoses, experiences, and perspectives. We'll hear from working parents, advocates, engineers, writers, PhD candidates, and more to learn that while we may be different, we are all united by our own ADHD journeys. This special project is very near and dear to my heart, and although talking to 31 different people has been a lot of talking. I am so grateful for each person who shared their story with me, and I cannot wait for you to meet my guests and get to know them. Be sure to subscribe to Refocus with Lindsay Gensel so that you don't miss a single story this month. And with that, let's get on to today's episode. Jacqueline Paul first began to suspect she had ADHD in high school. She had a persistent feeling that somehow she'd fooled everyone into thinking she was a good student and a responsible kid. But she didn't feel comfortable asking for a formal ADHD assessment. So she hid her struggles and feared opening up. And she coped by internalizing the external messages of, you're fine, life is hard, and just suck it up. She swept it all under the rug until work stress and running a household became too much to bear as an adult. She found a therapist through her job's employee assistance program and began on a path of progress into self-directed adulthood. Then she decided to share her story so others like her would feel less alone. And she started the popular blog, The ADHD Homestead in 2014. Then she published the best-selling book, Order from Chaos, The Everyday Grind of Staying Organized with Adult ADHD in 2018. Jacqueline has found a place in the ADHD community somewhere between the old academic guard and this new social media wave, helping the caretakers of the world as they manage their ADHD. I am so excited to welcome Jacqueline Paul to Refocus Together. Jacqueline, I am so grateful for your time today. Thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. Oh, thank you. And now I'm like, oh, I need that bio. That's a very nice, uh, <laughs> nice introduction. 
I will pass it along. That all that credit goes to one of my amazing assistants, Sarah. She's she's very good at what she does. So, um, so let's start at the beginning when you were diagnosed. What was that process like, and and what do you remember from those initial conversations? Um. So I guess I mean one could say in terms of my medical record or or whatever, what's what's officially on file that I was diagnosed sometime in my mid-20s when it was shortly after I had graduated from college, gotten married, bought a house, and changed jobs in within the span of like maybe 18 months, uh, which I, I think they don't recommend you pile up that many big life changes in one small period of time, but uh, it's sometimes that ADHD more is more. But I got to a point then when I was really very much more self-directed than I had ever been. I didn't have the structure of academia or my, you know, living at home with my parents. There as a backdrop, uh, I had to make up all that structure myself. And it turned out that was way too, it was, that was just the straw that kind of broke the camel's back. And so I did have a job, which actually most, most jobs, at least at the time had this as part of our benefits, we had access to the employee assistance program, which is you do just call a hotline and they match you up with the help you need kind of no matter what you're asking for. And a lot of people don't realize that's out there and that it covers a lot of plans cover everyone in your household, even if they're not related to you. So even if you have a roommate who's kind of going through a crisis, they might be able to access urgent care services this way. Anyway, I just called them up and I was kind of at a rock bottom point where I was like, I cannot exist in my life as it is. Uh, and I, I need to take action on this now. And so then I did and they sent me back to my primary care doctor and all that. But definitely the signs were there, like you said, far, far before. And I had even kind of figured it out sometime in high school. But I And I did as much assessment as I could autonomously. But I, that's definitely not, you know, it doesn't, that's not a like formal diagnosis on record. And what were the things that you were talking to your provider about at the time? Because as we know, this outdated idea of what ADHD looks like, at least from what I remember as a child in school, like the people who had ADHD in it, they were predominantly boys and they were predominantly loud and bouncing off the walls. So I'm always curious what it is or like those first conversations you have. And you touched on it a little bit with this like doing so many massive life changes at once. And it's almost like we are just expected to be able to handle all of that. And so you just kind of go along with it because it's this idea that, yeah, that's what happens. You you go to high school and you graduate and you figure out your next plans. And then there's marriage and uh, mortgages and jobs and all those things. And we just aren't prepared for it, I think, with or without ADHD. Yeah. It's it's that much transition is hard for anyone, but I've learned because of our time perception that folks with ADHD, it, those tr- any kind of transition, whether it's transitioning from sitting on the couch to taking a shower in the evening or going, you know, moving two states away and starting a new job, it, any level of transition is more challenging for us. So 
yeah, that, that was what triggered it. And at the time I was, I guess what I articulated in my journals as I remember remembering them is, um, I just realized my husband and I were both doing this, but we would go to the store and have a bag of things and come home and set the bag down and it would never get, the things would never get taken out of it. And there was just six months at a time worth of mail just sitting unopened around the house. I would get checks, like reimbursement checks from my, my job. And this was before the smartphones and mobile deposits. So I would just forget to take them to the bank until they expired. And then I either was out the money or I had to go back to the finance office and tell them to cut me a new check because I'd let the first one expire. And then you start the whole process over again. It was just that kind of stacking up of truly basic life things that I was just floundering with all of them. And at that time, that's what I went to talk to them about. And I did come armed with everything that I had sort of compiled over the years too, because as a writer, I've I have a I have written record of a lot of thinking through things that I've done over the years. But when I was in high school, I had written down why I suspected ADHD and different things that had been present since I started forming memories, basically. I want to ask about the writing side of things because you've mentioned the journals and being able to go back and, and read your feelings in those moments. How mm-hmm. instrumental has that part that, you know, something you love that you do every day, how instrumental has that been in kind of documenting your ADHD, but also seeing kind of the ebbs and the flows of some of the symptoms that come with it? I would say very important. Even among people with ADHD who I know personally, I seem to have an exceptionally weak memory. And even while I'm in a conversation with someone, if it's an important conversation, often I will kind of jot down notes or write questions that I have so that I don't interrupt, but I can forget even over the course of one conversation, kind of where we started and where, where we are now. So it has been absolutely instrumental in looking back and there's what we remember of our early lives. And a lot of ADHD people I've talked to say they feel like they have fewer memories and that can be really tough when Sometimes our experience is validated externally by people saying, well, you're supposed to have experienced this, this, and this throughout your life. Um, And for me, being on the spot and sort of pressured in a conversation, my mind just goes blank. So it helps me to have to process things out in writing beforehand and even have that with me so that I can remember what my perspective is versus someone. Because I think a lot of women with ADHD have had this experience where we're saying there's something wrong and we know there's something wrong. And then we receive pushback that invalidates it in a way that you can lose your footing in a conversation and walk out of it being like, "Uh, yeah, I guess, yeah, I guess you're right. Like, I'll just go... I'll try this stuff that you suggested, you know, that's probably right. And then it starts the cycle over again. So I would say that's been incredibly instrumental um, for me because it's how I process things a lot uh, and figure things out, think things through. But also 
because it can be easy for us to be rattled in our perceptions and trusting ourselves. Because I think a lot of us grow up having that reinforced out of us. So it's helpful to have that record and to be able to say, no, I know how I was feeling when this happened because I journaled about it at the time. It's not just that I'm remembering feeling that way. Like I did feel that way. And that's, it is extremely helpful. That's awesome. It's one thing that I've done sporadically through life. And I'm always very envious of people who can fit it into a routine because I think it is so special to be able to go back and actually see some of those things unfold in a more traditional like play-by-play essentially. You know, you're seeing it all kind of unfold in the moment by going back to it. Um, so that's a I, that's an incredible piece for you. And I'm curious, you did touch on a few of the things in that initial conversation, you know, things around the house that were happening, uh, mail piling up, all of which I can very much relate to. What were some of the first things you started doing to address those concerns, whether it was, you know, implementing a treatment plan or changing how you did certain things or medication or speaking to a therapist? Like, what have you done to help with some of those things, whether they worked in the moment or not? The first thing I remember after that sort of diagnosis conversation is doing a trial on medication. And the first day I took it, I can remember it completely changed my perception of pretty much everything and illuminated for me, oh, this is the sensation people were expecting that I was feeling when they were asking me to do this thing. And this is why it didn't make sense to either of us that I didn't get it because it just my especially the my perception of time uh especially in an interaction having like a pause where i could even for a split second consider my response and choose my response that kind of thing and the the being able to initiate the just even the most basic basic stuff like i've walked into the house with a shopping bag and now i need to put the three items that are in the shopping bag away and not just put the bag on the floor. That allowed me to do the the second piece, which I feel like was to continue educating myself and reading books and, and really learning about what what living with ADHD meant for me. So I did have a big education piece that did inform the actual how of like running my life, but the first step was for me, it was medication and not everyone has a good experience. And there's a whole side rant about generic medications for brain-based stuff. But it for me, medication really, like I did get kind of the right one right off the bat. And I kind of realized what, what, a baseline should feel like. And then I was able to do the education piece. And then those two things together, I was able to change like the way I did things in the end. I had a very similar experience on day one of medication. And I totally agree with you on everything. Like there's so many ways to look at medication and it's going to work differently for everyone. And I'm hopeful, knock on wood, that mine stays the way it's been going. You know, I'm at a year and a half and everything is great. But that first day, I remember having this feeling like, this is what I've 
been supposed to be feeling like, like my brain is supposed to be clear. (laughs) And I love the way you phrased it in the sense of like, this is what everyone expected I was feeling like, or I was, you know, that this was, this was the expectation. And I didn't know that that wasn't. And you don't know what you don't know. And so you don't say anything, you know, how do you explain brain? How do you explain brain fog until it's gone and you go, oh, you mean that wasn't supposed to be there? And so I really appreciate your your honesty in that. I think it's really important for people to realize that most people do realize, but acknowledge, you know, everyone's journey is going to be different. And the way ADHD affects people is so different. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And that's even having ADHD myself, I know that doesn't give me a ticket to just understand what another person's life experience is because it is just it is so different and i i try to be careful about speaking for anybody but me because it is who you are and what your level of privilege is and what environment you grow up in and it all comes together to manifest a certain way for for one person and it can be totally different for another and it's is very hard to make a general statement i feel like about adhd and exactly what will help and what sequence and all that is different for absolutely everybody. Yes. There's a very important place in life where you learn and acknowledge the privilege that you come from in, in a lot of different ways. And I've experienced a lot of that with my own ADHD journey and just like what I've been able to get access to, like being able to go to therapy during the day because I can set my own hours. Like that in itself is a privilege to not be fighting for the after work hours that everyone else is is looking for. It's just it's those little things that, you know, can make or break someone's treatment plan. Um, I'm curious to know what else you have done or tried outside of medication and educating yourself. Um, you know, some people look at adding in different styles of eating or meditation or therapy. And, you know, you've kind of been on this journey for a long time and you've shared so publicly about it. So what are some of the things that stand out that you've either added in or eliminated from your life that you found to be beneficial? So aside from, yeah, what I've, I have shared very publicly, I do feel like I, the mindfulness meditation is actually, that's something I've just started doing again because it is so helpful. It's, there's, it offers glimpses and no one, I I don't think can sit and just be completely present and mindful hundred percent for whatever the timed meditation is. But when I practice it every day, I can get glimpses of it. And it's that same mind emptying feeling that I think a lot of us chase in our leisure time stuff. Like I do surfing and skiing, but I also, you know, if you play music, that things that you do that, that sort of clear your mind in a way that you can't usually access. I feel like a lot of us chase that um, sometimes to our detriment and sometimes to our benefit, but the meditation, it, it allows me to get scraps of it outside of, of that. And really remind myself of that baseline of stillness. Because again, I think, especially if we're in an intense situation or conversation, it's easy to get overwhelmed and overstimulated and lose your, your footing in a way that 
to me has been super problematic in the past in terms of relationships, but just it's not the you know, meditation isn't a superpower, but I do think it builds a habit muscle that is super helpful for us. And and that, and I've just learned, I do need a certain amount of exercise every day, even if I don't want it, like it does the things they say about it in improving your cognitive function. I have found to be true. My mood is better. Sometimes I really am not in the mood, but even just taking a little walk around the neighborhood is very, um, so those are two things that have been a big focus lately because I've been very busy and not maybe keeping on top of a lot of intentional systems I would like to. But those have been two things that even though everything's been in every direction lately, I've been trying to come back to because it's just that's super beneficial, like mental experience for me. I'm curious in those busy moments where you're like, I haven't been fulfilling these needs of mine as much as I want to be because life is busy and things happen. Do you ever feel like you fall into these the rut of all or nothing? I think that that is something that I've really struggled with with ADHD where it's like, well, if I can't be perfect, I can't work out every day and I can't do it the way I want to, I'm not going to do it or it's easier to like blow off. And it seems like you right now have a very good balance of like, yes, this is not exactly the way I want to be doing it or at the, you know, the level I want to be doing it. But I know that even just this walk around the block is going to be beneficial. Yeah. I think that is, it is so key because there are a lot of folks who say that ADHD predisposes us to more black and white thinking and the emotional hyper-focus time perception thing. For me, it's very easy to flip into that mode of it's, it's either all this or all this, and it's hard to see outside the moment and the feeling and the reaction. And that for me, like screws with the self-compassion piece of like, yes, this is not perfect, but it's better than nothing. Like literally anything is better than nothing. So, and I do, I have for a long time done in my bullet journal, it's, I call them habit hearts. And I originally got the idea from this book um, by Stephen Guise called Mini Habits. But the idea is that you have these daily goals that if it's not sort of embarrassing to admit how small they are, then they are too big. So in a time that's so overwhelming, and if I say have to get a whole book drafted, and that feels huge and terrible, and what if I can't do it? If you sit down and calculate out, well, if I want to do in 90 days, write a whole, the whole draft, then if I divide that by the number of day, like number of words by number of days, that means I have to write a thousand words a day. Oh no. And then if you feel like you can't write a thousand words, will you sit down in the chair? Uh, so like really lowering the bar for success until I can clear it. And it doesn't matter how low that is. So I have in the past just set a daily goal of like opening the word document for a project. And then I can like color in my little heart for that day and say, I did it. I did it. Okay. Success. Right now I have a goal of a hundred words per day, but every day I've met the hundred words. I've also written over a thousand words. That's not every day for the life of drafting a book, but just if I'm regularly not meeting a goal, now I do sit down and I say, okay, how can I make this goal even lower? 
so I can meet it. If I'm not meeting a hundred words, maybe I just need to write one sentence. And then, because once you sit down again, transitions are really hard and we can use that to our benefit that, oh, well, I said I could give up and just walk around the block and come back. But now that I'm out, it's really only going to take 15 extra minutes for me to walk a mile. So why not? Um, and really lower, like lowering the bar to entry, like until it feels easy to get in the door. Cause then once we're in the door, it's sort of, we have to expend effort to, to transition out of that mode and we might not want to do that. So we can surprise ourselves, but it is the all or nothing thinking for me is the default. And I really had to learn that mindset of just get in the door and then even your transition resistance might work for you, but just get in the door. Uh, but accepting that imperfect effort as okay. Um, it's like a lifelong process probably. Yes, it is a lifelong process. And I always keep reminding myself, like I was diagnosed right before I turned 35. And so it's not even been two years yet. And I keep telling myself on those days when I'm being kind to myself. And again, going back, you mentioned self-acceptance. It's such an important part of the journey. It's like, I've been trying to change 35 years of habits and learned behaviors and coping mechanisms in two years. Like, I'm not great at math, but I'm going to go ahead and guess that those two years, like, it's just never going to happen. You know, it's just like you're setting yourself up for failure. And so it's it's really great to hear, like, one, that you are working on finding this space and that some days it's really good for you. And two, you also acknowledge that, like, this is going to be a lifelong thing, like reminding yourself every day of like, this is how I function best. And I would love to know when you look at life and all the things you're doing and all the things you have done, like, where do you consider yourself to be thriving? Where is it that you feel the most alive, like the most fulfilled in, in any given day? Um, you know, I... The spent the pandemic not doing any big writing projects because when we had the stay at home and then virtual school, uh, because I was the one who worked for myself and had the flexible life, uh, part of our domestic agreement is that I am the one who necessarily flexes because my husband at the time had just started a new job a week before the stay at home order. And he he is also on the hook to to give them a certain number of hours per week and so i took on the bulk of figuring out how to do virtual school and how to get our family food and basic supplies and all those things that uh became very hard in 2020 and i've I really had to come to terms with the loss of that time. It's not like I'm going to spend two months working extra hard right now and get it back. Um, it's just, I'm. it's time that a lot of us will never get back and dwelling on it is not great um, or productive. So one place I'm really thriving right now is digging into writing a couple of new projects and giving myself time and space to do that because I can now. I can once again go to an out of town writing retreat and not have to take my child with me and hunker down somewhere. So I've really been letting myself dip my toes in a bunch of projects and and choose which ones I want to do next and that like doing and 
I also just went through a huge like process editing a book, you know, that's coming out in a few months and doing that kind of work, the deeply engaging, like hyper-focused work again was just really exciting for me because that deep work is what I hadn't done for the past couple of years. And so the place that I feel I'm thriving now is just using my mind in that way again and allowing myself to like get into that hyper-focused creative zone that I think we all have it with something, some kind of activity we do. It just, the activity varies by person. But I think there are a lot of us in a caretaker role who didn't literally did not have the space to give ourselves time to sink into that zone where we really like to be and where if we just stayed all the time, ADHD might be the superpower. <laughs> um, so for me, that's, that is my big plus for this point in our lives that I can finally make space for that again. And thinking like, yes, the house also got messy, but I should make space for this because it is so restorative for me. And that's important too. I'm really glad you touched on the pandemic because I think sometimes where we are right now, and yes, COVID-19 is still very much going on, but we are not where we were in March of 2020. And no. I think sometimes because we've moved past it, we forget how tumultuous and scary and quick that came. And I know we say quick. I mean, we had been talking about COVID-19 for months, but and I I laugh. I would never do it now knowing what I know, but like I went to a bachelorette party on March 14th for like a dear friend and like Minnesota shut down March 17th. Like that's how quick it went from like, oh, it's it's uncertain things are happening to like, oh no, you're out of a job. We don't know when you'll come back. Like uh, you know, we'll touch base every week. And again, hadn't been diagnosed yet with ADHD, did not understand transitions. And I look back and it's like, well, of course it took me like a month to like get off the couch. Like everything was just gone and I didn't have a job, you know, like I wasn't working from home. And so, you know, in your case to be the caregiver and, you know, you have this agreement and this understanding, but it came kind of out of nowhere. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We were the same in Maryland, actually, that we went to a birthday party for a neighbor's kid. And I think that was like March 13th. And then March 14th, they like the kids didn't go to school because it was like the next day that they announced everything would be shutting down. And then we were all home. But yeah, a couple weeks before that, I had gone to a huge like restaurant fundraiser for the school PTO. And it was all of us like really packed the gills inside this pub and having a good time. And none of us knew that that would be one of the last normal things we did. And even that January that I did uh, like a interview on our local NPR station and I was planning to do like a book tour and my, yeah, everything that I thought about what our year 2020 would look like just changed basically overnight. And yeah, I think a lot of us forget to honor how hard transitions are and how everybody says living in the moment is so great and something we should try to do, but there's too much of a good thing. And it's 
I remind my kid this all the time. I'm like, you are having trouble changing gears. We, we need to take a minute and just be in the transition space before I'm like forcing you into the next or else it's going to. And yeah, the like taking a month to get off the couch, that's the transition space that I think we don't allow ourselves to need time to transition when our brain cycles are all just going toward the transition and we're not really able to manage a lot else. We're supposed to just manage everything and the transition as though it's not there. And it's, it's whole, it's a whole thing of its own for us and I mean, for everybody, but. You mentioned going to that event for uh, your children's school. I'm always curious how people with, ADHD function in places where it's not really talked about. And I imagine that you go to these events and there's, you know, a lot of uh, volunteer opportunities and ways to get involved. And I know from my own experience with ADHD is like, I want to help and I want to do all these things and I take on too much or I worry I'm going to disappoint someone. And so it's kind of this gray area because they may know you and know about your book and know about you know the work you're doing on your blog and, and that you're so open about your own ADHD, but some people might not. And so I'm curious how you kind of manage those expectations in a setting where it's like, I have this like old school vision of like the school PTA and like there's the one mom that's just like the alpha and she gets everything done. And I'm like, I'm terrified of her. <laughs> Like I'm gonna disappoint you. It's like how have you? Because she looks like she's doing it all. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and I don't. And someone told me once. Well, look, you know, those people who look like they're doing it all are probably actually paying someone to help them with things that you are doing yourself. I was like, okay, maybe, but it does look like some people just can do more and. I have chronically, historically struggled with overcommitment because ADHD also, it shrinks our working memory, which is like the part of your brain that allows you to keep more than one thing in your head at one time. And so if someone asks if I can do something, that thing is not a big deal. And I'm like, well, I can do it. Why would I say no? But that's because my brain literally won't fit the other obligations I currently have in with the other things so I can conceptualize them all together. And I think the best answer to that in my mind is not committing to anything on the spot and saying, I have to like, look at my, I have to like take a look at my other things on my list and make sure that I'm going to be able to do this justice. Um, but I, I do have problems with overcommitting and also in a group like that, you know, the mom that you're terrified of also it, throughout my young life, all of my friends were guys. And being the girl who can't keep girlfriends in school is one thing. But when you are a 37-year-old adult, and most of your friends are like pretty heteronormative couples, and that's just what's expected on a larger level at your kid's school, I think there's a way that like the in-group of moms operates. <laughs> And that's a social landscape I've never known how to parse. And so that is a struggle too. And that are a lot of us carry that habit of masking and trying to pretend that we belong somewhere when we don't either don't think we belong or don't think we deserve to be there. 
and trying to make up for that with saying yes when we shouldn't. So it is a big struggle and it's helped me to have some of some people that I'm socially close to outside of that context also involved in the volunteer leadership structure because then that's I know that we have a common understanding and that it's not just a whole wild card group that I feel like I have to like make a good impression but it's definitely a struggle and I've tried lately to not say yes or no right away until I can come and like write down everything else I have on my plate because I can't bring it out of my head. And I will just be like, oh yeah, that sounds fun. I can do that. I'd be good at that. And you want to show the things that you're good at. And you know, <laughs> you're only good at it if you have time to do it. I love that. That's like a line. You're only good at it if you have time <laughs> to do it. I, I like, I'm going to write that down on a post-it note and like carry it around and I have this group of women that I work out with at the gym and I always tell them, I'm just going to call you before I commit to something so you can tell me that <laughs> I don't have time, you know, because you get so stressed out and then it just becomes not enjoyable and then the self-doubt creeps in and it's like this vicious cycle we put ourselves through over and over again. And it, yeah, at some point it's like, just got to say no. And no one wants you to feel that way too, as I was just listening to a podcast. I think it was Glennon Doyle's podcast last night. And it was an episode where they were talking about relationships and how you know sometimes we don't want to break off a relationship because we, we do care for the person and we don't want to hurt them or we don't want to disappoint people. And the host and the guest they had on made a, the point that a person doesn't want to be in a relationship with someone who's only there because they don't want to hurt their feelings. So you're really not doing anyone a favor by putting yourself out in that way. And the same thing with when someone asks you to get involved with a group or you know, to volunteer, they need help. And they would, they're asking because they would genuinely appreciate you there and think you might be a good fit or would, would it get something out of it. But most people are not asking you to make yourself miserable. And if you do make yourself miserable and really, you know, work your butt off in a way that's not healthy, they're not going to be more appreciative because you've done that. Like, wow, thanks for really taking one for the team. Most people are not when they're asking you to do something, asking you to feel that way and asking you to experience an unhealthy level of stress in your life and miss out on things that you want. It just, that's not what people who like care and how to respect us want for us. And I think that's something that I'm trying to remember is that this isn't what people aren't asking me to like stress this much. And if they knew that it felt like this much of a burden, they wouldn't ask. So it's truly healthier for everyone to say no, if that's the answer that it should be. But it can be really hard because it feels not nice. And there's like that pressure too to be nice. And Oh, the pressure to be nice is, it's one that I've fallen victim to. There's this thing called Minnesota nice. And so we just say yes to everything. And yeah, we're, I'm working on breaking myself of, of all of that. You've touched on a ton of stuff that you have going on and you know how life has changed a little bit since you know the lockdown was happening and the kind of the opportunities you have back now and how fulfilled you're feeling in those situations. So what is pushing you forward? Like what's on the horizon or something that you're maybe like 
you know, the inklings are going around in your brain, like that might be something I want to try out that like is just giving you hope right now. That's just like very exciting. Well, so I just did finish, finish, finish uh, a novel that I'd been working on for a while because- Congratulations. A, thank you. Yeah. Before I was a nonfiction writer, I was was a fiction writer. It's, I've done that forever and ever. Um, but it- it, it was helpful to really finish something and, and okay, I, I still am capable of succeeding at a big project and seeing it through. And that has really helped me get over the hump of starting a new huge project because once I've started the new huge project, I'm like, oh, I can't even imagine the end of this. But having gotten a chance to finish and turn in a project again has been very, very encouraging. and it it does give me that reminder that yes this is something i can do when i have space to even do it a little bit and it's not an active apocalypse scenario every single day and that is that's helping me move forward a lot just knowing that i can say oh yeah that i'm i wrapped up on that <laughs> and i've moved on and i have faith that i will also get to the end of the next project. So that's awesome. That's awesome. I I had a project that I saw from start to finish last year and it was following um, a young group of women who were running the Twin Cities Marathon. And I started training with them in July and then we ran the race in October. And there was this moment after the story was published, it was like three days later where I was just sitting there and I called my big sister and I was like, I did it. Like I followed through with this and I started something and I made all my milestones and I, and it is such kind of a foreign concept in my life. I'm a great starter. The middle ground is not where I thrive, but you yeah. have to like hold on to those moments because it reminds you you're capable of doing it. All the times that we have abandoned something or we can't jump back into it and we just beat ourselves up. But like, I, I love that you have that feeling to like latch on to like, yes, I know what this feels like. Yeah. I tell people like really linger on that because it's, it is a, it's a really great feeling that a lot of us late diagnosis people might not have gotten a lot of when we were young and it just really dwell on it and use it, like hold on to it as a reminder later that yes, like I, okay, I finished something like this is something I'm capable of. And even if I have a setback, it's okay. I'll get back up again and keep going. But it's like not one of those experiences is to be taken for granted for me because it is, yeah, I, I too am a very enthusiastic starter, but once it becomes hard and the like glittery potential is not the on the main stage anymore, it's very, it's a lot to keep going. I want to wrap this up by asking you, what is something that you wish more people knew or understood about ADHD? You know, the whole purpose of this project is to tell 31 different stories to really highlight how different ADHD is is when it shows up in people's lives. So for you, what is that message? And what is kind of the, the one thing that stands out when thinking about breaking down those stigmas? I think for me, I wrote this down in my notes before this, that 
that that actually kind of for me is the message because uh, I think there's been a real leveling of any anyone can become an advocate for ADHD now social media has made it so that people can have a voice for folks who haven't felt seen before and they don't have to there's there's no gatekeepers there except your own ability to i guess get get in with the algorithm but i think that also we can get into this assumption that well, I have educated and enlightened myself. And so I think I get it. Um, and when someone else has ADHD, I say, well, I get it because I have ADHD too. But, and then I think for me, what I wish more people realized is even after you think that you get it, there are still things that you don't. Really, there are a lot of, I think, personal experience writers out there now who feel a pressure to position themselves as an expert, uh, like a subject area expert. And yes, we need something beyond the old guard academic experts. But there's a reason that there is a gatekeeping process there. And I, I mean, I'm a personal experience writer, obviously. I think it's very, very necessary for people and it, it creates community and folks feel like they're not alone and it's great. But I don't necessarily call myself a general ADHD expert as much as there's a lot that I've learned and I'm willing to share. And I can also tell the story of how that looks in the context of my personal experience. But there are a lot of people who have come to me and made it clear that because, well, they have three children who all had ADHD or well, they have ADHD too, and that 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 gives them an expertise on other people's experience, and that is just not true. <laughs> and it's something that I wish a lot more people understood that it does show up so differently for everybody, and privilege pays such a huge role, and our individual brain makeup beyond the ADHD plays such a huge role in our families and that really we need to listen to each part of the story and really have an open mind about what it what ADHD actually means and yeah that's something that I run into a lot of assumptions that oh well because of my life experience I understand your life experience and what you are, are, what you're struggling with and what you shouldn't be struggling with. Well, it's also a great reminder that anyone can put stuff out on the internet and Mm -hmm. going back, you know, we were talking about kind of the cliche PTA mom who looks like she can get everything done is probably paying somebody to do some of those things. Like we just don't know outside of what we see on the screen, what is actually happening and what goes into curating the stuff that's going out there. So it is just like a nice reminder to like go in. I don't want to say go in skeptical or go in and like take things with a grain of salt, but like be conscious of the fact that like everyone has access to put stuff on the internet. And you mentioned like the algorithm plays a big role in in what we're shown. And so just like being aware of that their experience might not be your experience, but that doesn't mean that there's not somebody out there who's sharing something that you might connect with a little bit more. It's just not. Yeah. 
And it's not journalism either that I think also people don't realize, well, when you get popular and you get pressure to start accepting money from different opportunities that people offer you, then that creates a conflict of interest. And it's my like nerdy HR manager past career, but it's, I think people are, you know, bound to disclose that. But I think also as consumers of media, like my generation and older is probably not so savvy at thinking through what that means. And that that's not, there's not an expectation of journalistic integrity on social media. And it's people may not even be acknowledging the things that can introduce bias. And it's, it's just, it's kind of a wild west. (laughs) And just, yeah, maybe you will resonate with something. And that's great. But just also keep a keep a slightly cynical eye toward things. Yes. I I mean, I could go down this rabbit hole. The number of times I've answered the phone at work at any of my jobs where I had to explain the difference between a news show and a talk show and the difference between a reporter and a host who's paid to have an opinion. I mean, again, a deep rabbit hole I do not want to go down because <laughs> I, I've you know, been spewing that for so many years. But Jacqueline, thank you so much for sharing so much of your own journey, but so much insight into, uh, you know, I think you just offered up some really, really great, easy thoughtful ways for people to take a deep breath, separate themselves from what's happening and like realize like we're doing the best we can and we can only improve. And a lot of that comes from educating ourselves. And thank you for being a a part of that message this month. Oh, sure. Thank you for this. This is fun. A big thanks to Jacqueline Paul for sharing her story with us on Refocus Together. You can check out all of her amazing work at adhdhomestead.net. I've also linked it in the show notes. There are so many people to thank for making Refocus Together happen. The entire team at ADHD Online, Zach Booker, Dr. Randall Dutler, Tim Gutwald, Keith Brophy, My teammates, Keith Boswell, Suzanne Spruitt, Claudia Gotti, Melanie Mile, Paul Owen, Kirsten Pipp, Sissy Yee, Trisha Merchandani, Lauren Radley, Corey Kearney and Mason Nelly and the team at Dexia, Hector and Kenneth and the team at Snack Media, Cameron Sterling and Candace Lefke, Camilla Eden, Lauren Terry, Sarah Galbard, Phil Rodeman, Jake Beaver, and Sarah Platinitis. Our theme music was created by Louis Inglis, a songwriter and composer based in Perth, Australia, who was diagnosed with ADHD in 2020 at the age of 39. To find out more about Refocus Together or to share your story with me, head over to ADHDonline.com and check out the ADHD Awareness Month page, which highlights this project as well as each day's episode after they've been released. You can also find out more by following along on social at Lindsay Gensel and at Refocus Pod.